Chapter One, Part Three of Widdershins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green. Widdershins by Oliver Onions. Chapter One, Part Three. He stood on the curb, plunged in misery, looking after her as long as she remained in sight, but almost instantly with her disappearance he felt the heaviness lift a little from his spirit. She had given him his liberty, true. There was a sense in which he had never parted with it, but now was no time for splitting hairs. He was free to act, and all was clear ahead. Swiftly the sense of lightness grew on him. It became a positive rejoicing in his liberty, and before he was halfway home he had decided what must be done next. The vicar of the parish in which his dwelling was situated lived within ten minutes of the square. To his house Oleron turned his steps. It was necessary that he should have all the information he could get about this old house, with the insurance marks and the sloping to-let boards, and the vicar was the person most likely to be able to furnish it. This last preliminary out of the way, and, aha, Oleron chuckled, things might be expected to happen. But he gained less information than he had hoped for. The house, the vicar said, was old, but there needed no vicar to tell Oleron that. It was reputed, Oleron pricked up his ears, to be haunted, but there were few old houses about which some such rumour did not circulate among the ignorant, and the deplorable lack of faith of the modern world, the vicar thought, did not tend to dissipate these superstitions. For the rest, his manner was the soothing manner of one who prefers not to make statements without knowing how they will be taken by his hearer. Oleron smiled as he perceived this. "'You may leave my nerves out of the question,' he said. "'How long has the place been empty?' "'A dozen years, I should say,' the vicar replied. "'And the last tenant, did you know him, or her?' Oleron was conscious of a tingling of his nerves, as he offered the vicar the alternative of sex. "'Him,' said the vicar. "'A man. If I remember rightly, his name was Maidley, an artist. He was a great recluse, seldom went out of the place, and—the vicar hesitated, and then broke into a little gush of candour. "'And since you appear to have come for this information, and since it is better that the truth should be told than that garbled version should get about, I don't mind saying that this man Maidley died there, under somewhat unusual circumstances. It was ascertained at the post-mortem that there was not a particle of food in his stomach, although he was found to be not without money, and his frame was simply worn out. Suicide was spoken of, but you'll agree with me that deliberate starvation is, to say the least, an uncommon form of suicide. An open verdict was returned. Ah, said Oleron, does there happen to be any comprehensive history of this parish? No, partial ones only. I myself am not guiltless of having made a number of notes on its purely ecclesiastical history, its registers and so forth, which I shall be happy to show you, if you would care to see them. Uh, but it is a large parish. I have only one curate, and my leisure, as you will readily understand. The extent of the parish and the scantiness of the vicar's leisure occupied the remainder of the interview, and Oleron thanked the vicar, took his leave, and walked slowly home. He walked slowly for a reason, twice turning away from the house within a stone's throw of the gate, and taking another turn of twenty minutes or so. He had a very ticklish piece of work now before him. It required the greatest mental concentration. It was nothing less than to bring his mind, if he might, into such a state of unpreoccupation and receptivity that he could see the place as he had seen it on that morning when, his removal accomplished, he had sat down to begin the sixteenth chapter of the first Romilly. For, could he recapture that first impression, he now hoped for far more from it. Formerly he had carried no end of mental lumber. Before the influence of the place had been able to find him out at all, it had had the inertia of those dreary chapters to overcome. No results had shown. The process had been one of slow saturation, charging, filling up to a brim. But now, he was light, unburdened, rid at last, both of that Romilly and of her prototype. Now, for the new unknown, coy, jealous, bewitching, beckoning fair. At half-past two of the afternoon he put his key into the Yale lock, entered and closed the door behind him. His fantastic attempt was instantly and astonishingly successful. 
He could have shouted with triumph as he entered the room. It was as if he had escaped into it. Once more, as in the days when his writing had had a daily freshness and wonder and promise for him, he was conscious of that new ease and mastery and exhilaration and release. The air of the place seemed to hold more oxygen, as if his own specific gravity had changed. His very tread seemed less ponderable. The flowers in the bowls, the fair proportions of the meadow-sweet coloured panels and mouldings, the polished floor and the lofty and faintly starred ceiling fairly laughed their welcome. Oleron actually laughed back and spoke aloud. "'Oh, you're pretty, pretty!' he flattered it. Then he lay down on his couch. He spent that afternoon as a convalescent who expected a dear visitor might have spent it, in a delicious vacancy, smiling now and then, as if in his sleep, and ever lifting drowsy and contented eyes to his alluring surroundings. He lay thus until darkness came, and with darkness the nocturnal noises of the old house. But if he waited for any specific happening, he waited in vain. He waited similarly in vain on the morrow, maintaining, though with less ease, that sensitised plate-like condition of his mind. Nothing occurred to give it an impression. Whatever it was which he so patiently wooed, it seemed to be both shy and exacting. Then on the third day he thought he understood. A look of gentle drollery and cunning came into his eyes, and he chuckled. Aho! Aho! Well, if the wind sits in that quarter we must see what else there is to be done. What is there now? No, I won't send for Elsie. We don't need a wheel to break the butterfly on. We won't go to those lengths, my butterfly. He was standing, musing, thumbing his lean jaw, looking aslant. Suddenly he crossed to his hall, took down his hat, and went out. "'My lady is coquettish, is she? Well, we'll see what a little neglect will do,' he chuckled as he went down the stairs. He sought a railway station, got into a train, and spent the rest of the day in the country. Oh, yes, Oleron thought he was the man to deal with fair ones who beckoned, and invited, and then took refuge in shyness, and hanging back. He did not return until after eleven that night. "'Now, my fair beckoner,' he murmured, as he walked along the alley and felt in his pocket for his keys. Inside his flat he was perfectly composed, perfectly deliberate, exceedingly careful not to give himself away. As if to intimate that he intended to retire immediately, he lighted only a single candle, and as he set out with it on his nightly round, he affected to yawn. He went first into his kitchen. There was a full moon, and a lozenge of moonlight, almost peacock-blue by contrast with his candle-flame, lay on the floor. The window was uncurtained and he could see the reflection of the candle, and faintly that of his own face as he moved about. The door of the powder-closet stood a little ajar, and he closed it before sitting down to remove his boots on the chair with the cushion made of the folded harp-bag. From the kitchen he passed to the bathroom. There another slant of blue moonlight cut the window-sill and lay across the pipes on the wall. He visited his seldom-used study, and stood for a moment gazing at the silvered roofs across the square. Then, walking straight through his sitting-room, his stockinged feet making no noise, he entered his bedroom and put the candle on the chest of drawers. His face all this time wore no expression save that of tiredness. He had never been wilier nor more alert. His small bedroom fireplace was opposite the chest of drawers on which the mirror stood, and his bed and the window occupied the remaining sides of the room. Oleron drew down his blind, took off his coat, and then stooped to get his slippers from under the bed. He could have given no reason for the conviction, but that the manifestation that for two days had been withheld was close at hand he never for an instant doubted, nor, though he could not form the faintest guess of the shape it might take, did he experience fear. Startling or surprising it might be, but he was prepared for that. But that was all. His scale of sensation had become depressed. His hand moved this way and that, under the bed, in search of his slippers. But for all his caution and method and preparedness, his heart all at once gave a leap and a pause that was almost horrid. His hand had found the slippers, but he was still on his knees, save for this circumstance he would have fallen. The bed was a low one, the groping for the slippers accounted for the turn of his head to one side and he was careful to keep the attitude until he had partly recovered his self-possession. When presently he rose, there was a drop of blood on his lower lip, where he had caught at it with his teeth, 
and his watch had jerked out of the pocket of his waistcoat, and was dangling at the end of its short leather guard. Then, before the watch had ceased its little oscillation, he was himself again. In the middle of his mantelpiece there stood a picture, a portrait of his grandmother. He placed himself before this picture so that he could see in the glass of it the steady flame of the candle that burned behind him on the chest of drawers. He could see also in the picture-glass the little glancings of light from the bevels and facets of the objects about the mirror and candle. But he could see more. These twinklings and reflections and re-reflections did not change their position, but there was one gleam that had motion. It was fainter than the rest, and it moved up and down through the air. It was the reflection of the candle on Oleron's black vulcanite comb, and each of its downward movements was accompanied by a silky and crackling rustle. Oleron, watching what went on in the glass of his grandmother's portrait, continued to play his part. He felt for his dangling watch and began slowly to wind it up. Then for a moment, ceasing to watch, he began to empty his trousers' pockets, and to place methodically in a little row on the mantelpiece the pennies and halfpennies that he took from them. The sweeping, minutely electric noise filled the whole bedroom and had Oleron altered his point of observation, he could have brought the dim gleam of the moving comb so into position that it would almost have outlined his grandmother's head. Any other head of which it might have been following the outline was invisible. Oleron finished the emptying of his pockets. Then, under cover of another simulated yawn, not so much summoning his resolution as overmastered by exorbitant curiosity, he swung suddenly around. That which was being combed was still not to be seen, but the comb did not stop. It had altered its angle a little, and had moved a little to the left. It was passing, in fairly regular sweeps, from a point rather more than five feet from the ground, in a direction roughly vertical, to another point a few inches below the level of the chest of drawers. Oleron continued to act to admiration. He walked to his little washstand in the corner, poured out water, and began to wash his hands. He removed his waistcoat, and continued his preparations for bed. The combing did not cease, and he stood for a moment in thought. Again his eyes twinkled. The next was very cunning. "'Hm, I think I'll read for a quarter of an hour,' he said aloud. He passed out of the room. He was away a couple of minutes. When he returned again, the room was suddenly quiet. He glanced at the chest of drawers. The comb lay still, between the collar he had removed, and a pair of gloves. Without hesitation, Oleron put out his hand and picked it up. It was an ordinary eighteen-penny comb, taken from a card in a chemist's shop, of a substance of a definite specific gravity, and no more capable of rebellion against the laws by which it existed than are the worlds that keep their orbits through the void. Oleron put it down again. Then he glanced at the bundle of papers he held in his hand. What he had gone to fetch had been the fifteen chapters of the original Romilly. Hmm, he muttered, as he threw the manuscript into a chair. As I thought, she's just blindingly, ragingly, murderously jealous. On the night after that, and on the following night, and for many nights and days, so many that he began to be uncertain about the count of them, Oleron, courting, cajoling, neglecting, threatening, beseeching, eaten out with the unappeased curiosity, and regardless that his life was becoming one consuming passion and desire, continued his search for the unknown co-numerator of his abode. As time went on, it came to pass that few except the postman mounted Oleron's stairs, and since men who do not write letters receive few, even the postman's tread became so infrequent that it was not heard more than once or twice a week. There came a letter from Oleron's publishers, asking when they might expect to receive the manuscript of his new book. He delayed for some days to answer it, and finally forgot it. A second letter came, which also he failed to answer. He received no third. The weather grew bright and warm, the privet bushes among the chopper-like notice-boards flowered, and in the streets where Oleron did his shopping the baskets of flower-women lined the curbs. Oleron purchased flowers daily. His room clamoured for flowers, fresh and continually renewed, and Oleron did not stint its demands. Nevertheless, the necessity for going out to buy them began to irk him more and more, and it was with a greater and even greater sense of relief that he returned home again. He began to be conscious that, again, his scale of sensation had suffered a subtle change. 
a change that was not restoration to its former capacity, but an extension and enlarging that once more included terror. It admitted it in an entirely new form, Lux Orco, Tenebrae Jovi. The name of this terror was agoraphobia. Oleron had begun to dread air and space and the horror that might pounce upon the unguarded back. Presently he so contrived it that his food and flowers were delivered daily at his door. He rubbed his hands when he had hit upon this expedient. That was better. Now he could please himself whether he went out or not. Quickly he was confirmed in his choice. It became his pleasure to remain immured. But he was not happy. Or if he was, his happiness took an extraordinary turn. He fretted discontentedly, could sometimes have wept for mere weakness and misery, and yet he was dimly conscious that he would not have exchanged his sadness for all the noisy mirth of the world outside. And speaking of noise, noise, much noise, now caused him the acutest discomfort. It was hardly more to be endured than that newborn fear that kept him, on the increasingly rare occasions when he did go out, sidling close to the walls and feeling friendly railings with his hand. He moved from room to room, softly and in slippers, and sometimes stood for many seconds closing a door so gently that not a sound broke the stillness that was in itself a delight. Sunday now became an intolerable day to him, for, since the coming of the fine weather, there had begun to assemble in the square under his window each Sunday morning certain members of the sect to which the long-nosed Barrett adhered. These came with a great drum and large brass-bellied instruments, men and women uplifted anguished voices, struggling with their god, and Barrett himself, with upraised face and closed eyes and working brows, prayed that the sound of his voice might penetrate the ears of all unbelievers, as it certainly did Oleron's. One day, in the middle of one of these rhapsodies, Oleron sprang to his blind and pulled it down, and heard, as he did so, his own name made the subject of a fresh torrent of outpouring. And sometimes, but not as expecting a reply, Oleron stood still and called softly. Once or twice he called Romilly, and then waited, but more often his whispering did not take the shape of a name. There was one spot in particular of his abode that he began to haunt with increasing persistency. This was just within the opening of his bedroom door. He had discovered one day that by opening every door in his place, always excepting the outer one, which he only opened unwillingly, and by placing himself on this particular spot, he could actually see to a greater or less extent into each of his five rooms, without changing his position. He could see the whole of his sitting-room, all of his bedroom except the part hidden by the open door, and glimpses of his kitchen, bathroom, and of his rarely used study. He was often in this place, breathless, and with his finger on his lip. One day, as he stood there, he suddenly found himself wondering whether this maidly, of whom the vicar had spoken, had ever discovered the strategic importance of the bedroom entry. Light, moreover, now caused him greater disquietude than did darkness. Direct sunlight, of which, as the sun passed daily round the house, each of his rooms had now its share, was like a flame in his brain, and even diffused light was a dull and numbing ache. He began at successive hours of the day, one after another, to lower his crimson blinds. He made short and daring excursions in order to do this, but he was ever careful to leave his retreat open, in case he should have sudden need of it. Presently this lowering of the blinds had become a daily methodical exercise, and his rooms, when he had been his round, had the blood-red half-light of a photographer's dark-room. One day, as he drew down the blind of his little study, and backed in good order out of the room again, he broke into a soft laugh. "'That bilks Mr. Barrett,' he said, and the baffling of Barrett continued to afford him mirth for an hour. But on another day, soon after, he had a fright that left him trembling also for an hour. He had seized the cord to darken the window over the seat in which he had found the harp-bag, and was standing with his back well protected in the embrasure, when he thought he saw the tail of a black-and-white check skirt disappear round the corner of the house. He could not be sure. He had run to the window of the other wall, which was blinded. The skirt must have been already passed, but he was almost sure that it was Elsie. He listened in an agony of suspense for her tread on the stairs. But no tread came, and after three or four minutes he drew a long breath of relief. "'By Jove, but that would have compromised me horribly,' he muttered. And he continued to mutter from time to time, "'Horribly compromising. 
No woman would stand that. Not any kind of woman. Oh, compromising in the extreme. Yet he was not happy. He could not have assigned the cause of the fits of quiet weeping which took him sometimes. They came and went, like the fitful illumination of the clouds that travelled over the square. And perhaps, after all, if he was not happy, he was not unhappy. Before he could be unhappy something must have been withdrawn, and nothing had yet been withdrawn from him, for nothing had been granted. He was waiting for that granting, in that flower-laden, frightfully enticing apartment of his, with the pith-white walls tinged and subdued by the crimson blinds to a blood-like gloom. He paid no need to it that his stock of money was running perilously low, nor that he had ceased to work. Ceased to work? He had not ceased to work. They knew very little about it who supposed that Oleron had ceased to work. He was, in truth, only now beginning to work. He was preparing such a work, such a work. Such a mistress was a-making in the gestation of his art. Let him but get this period of probation and poignant waiting over, and men should see. How should men know her, this fair one of Oleron's, until Oleron himself knew her? Lovely radiant creations are not thrown off like how do you do's. The men to whom it is committed to father them must weep wretched tears, as Oleron did, must swell with vain presumptuous hopes, as Oleron did, must pursue, as Oleron pursued, the capricious, fair, mocking, slippery, eager spirit, that, ever eluding, ever sees to it, that the chase does not slacken. Let Oleron but hunt this huntress a little longer. He would have her sparkling and panting in his arms yet. Oh, no! They were very far from the truth who supposed that Oleron had ceased to work. And if all else was falling away from Oleron, gladly he was letting it go. So do we all when our fair ones beckon. Quite at the beginning we wink, and promise ourselves that we will put her ladyship through her paces, neglect her for a day, turn her own jealous wiles against her, flout and ignore her when she comes wheedling. Perhaps there lurks within us all the time a heartless sprite who is never fooled, but in the end all falls away. She beckons, beckons, and all goes. And so Oleron kept his strategic post within the frame of his bedroom door, and watched and waited and smiled with his finger on his lips. It was his duteous service, his worship, his troth-plighting, and all that he had ever known of love. And when he found himself, as he now and then did, hating the dead man madly, and wishing that he had never lived, he felt that that, too, was unacceptable service. But as he thus prepared himself, as it were, for a marriage, and moped and chafed more and more that the bride made no sign, he made a discovery that he ought to have made weeks before. It was through a thought of the dead Maidley that he made it. Since that night, when he had thought in his greenness that a little studied neglect would bring the lovely beckoner to her knees, and had made use of her own jealousy to banish her, he had not set eyes on those fifteen discarded chapters of Romilly. He had thrown them back into the window-seat, forgotten their very existence, but his own jealousy of Maidley put him in mind of hers, of her jilted rival of flesh and blood, and he remembered them. Fool that he had been! Had he then expected his desire to manifest herself, while there still existed the evidence of his divided allegiance? What, and she with a passion so fierce and centred that it had not hesitated at the destruction, twice attempted, of her rival? Fool that he had been! But if that was all the pledge and sacrifice she required, she should have it. Oh, yes, and quickly! He took the manuscript from the window-seat, and brought it to the fire. He kept his fire always burning now. The warmth brought out the last vestige of odour of the flowers with which his room was banked. He did not know what time it was, long since he had allowed his clock to run down. It had seemed a foolish measure of time in regard to the stupendous things that were happening to Oleron. But he knew it was late. He took the Romilly manuscript, and knelt before the fire but he had not finished removing the fastening that held the sheets together before he suddenly gave a start, turned his head over his shoulder, and listened intently. The sound he had heard had not been loud. It had been, indeed, no more than a tap, twice or thrice repeated, but it had filled Oleron with alarm. His face grew dark as it came again. He heard a voice outside on his landing. "'Paul! Paul!' It was Elsie's voice. "'Paul! I know you're in. I want to see you.' He cursed her under his breath, but kept perfectly still. 
He did not intend to admit her. "'Paul, you're in trouble. I believe you're in danger. At least come to the door.' Olron smothered a low laugh. It somehow amused him that she, in such danger herself, should talk to him of his danger. Well, if she was, serve her right. She knew, or said she knew, all about it. "'Paul! Paul!' "'Paul! Paul!' he mimicked her under his breath. "'Oh, Paul, it's horrible!' "'Horrible, was it?' thought Oleron. "'Then let her get away. "'I only want to help you, Paul. "'I didn't promise not to come if you needed me.' He was impervious to the pitiful sob that interrupted the low cry. The devil take the woman. Should he shout to her to go away and not come back? No, let her call and knock and sob. She had a gift for sobbing. She mustn't think her sobs would move him. They irritated him, so that he set his teeth and shook his fist at her. But that was all. Let her sob. Paul! Paul! With his teeth hard set, he dropped the first page of Romilly into the fire. Then he began to drop the rest in, sheet by sheet. For many minutes the calling behind his door continued, then suddenly it ceased. He heard the sound of feet slowly descending the stairs. He listened for the noise of a fall or a cry, or the crash of a piece of the handrail of the upper landing, but none of these things came. She was spared. Apparently her rival suffered her to crawl abject and beaten away. Oleron heard the passing of her steps under his window. Then she was gone. He dropped the last page into the fire, and then with a low laugh rose. He looked fondly round his room. "'Lucky to get away like that,' he remarked. "'She wouldn't have got away if I'd given her as much as a word or a look. What devils these women are! But no, I oughtn't to say that. One of them showed forbearance.' Who showed forbearance? And what was forborne? Ah, Oleron knew. Contempt, no doubt, had been at the bottom of it, but that didn't matter. The pestering creature had been allowed to go unharmed. Yes, she was lucky.' Oleron hoped she knew it. And now, now, now for his reward. Oleron crossed the room. All his doors were open. His eyes shone as he placed himself within that of his bedroom. Fool that he had been not to think of destroying the manuscript sooner. How, in a house full of shadows, should he know his own shadow? How, in a house full of noises, distinguish the summons he felt to be at hand? Ah, trust him. He would know. The place was full of a jugglery of dim lights. The blind at his elbow that allowed the light of a street-lamp to struggle vaguely through. The glimpse of a greeny-blue moonlight seen through the distant kitchen door. The sulky glow of the fire under the black ashes of the burnt manuscript. The glimmering of the tulips and the moon-daisies and the narcissi in the bowls and jugs and jars. These did not so trick and bewilder his eyes that he would not know his own. It was he, not she, who had been delaying the shadowy bridal. He hung his head for a moment in mute acknowledgment. Then he bent his eyes on the deceiving, puzzling gloom again. He would have called her name had he known it, but now he would not ask her to share even a name with the other. His own face within the frame of the door glimmered white as the narcissi in the darkness. A shadow, light as fleece, seemed to take shape in the kitchen. The time had been when Oleron would have said that a cloud had passed over the unseen moon, the low illumination on the blind at his elbow grew dimmer. The time had been when Oleron would have concluded that the lamplighter going his rounds had turned low the flame of the lamp. The fire settled, letting down the black and charred papers. A flower fell from a bowl, and lay indistinct upon the floor. All was still, and then a stray draught moved through the old house, passing before Oleron's face. Suddenly, inclining his head, he withdrew a little from the door-jamb. The wandering draught caused the door to move a little on its hinges. Oleron trembled violently, stood for a moment longer, and then, putting his hand out to the knob, softly drew the door to, sat down on the nearest chair, and waited, as a man might await the calling of his name that should summon him to some weighty, high, and privy audience. One knows not whether there can be human compassion for anemia of the soul, when the pitch of life is dropped, and the spirit is so put over and reversed that that only is horrible which before was sweet and worldly, and of the day the human relation disappears. The sane soul turns appalled away, lest not merely itself but sanity should suffer. We are not gods, we cannot drive out devils. 
we must see selfishly to it that devils do not enter into ourselves. And this we must do even though love so transfuses that we may well deem our nature to be half divine. We shall but speak of honour and duty in vain. The letter dropped within the dark door will lie unregarded, or if regarded for a brief instant between two unspeakable lapses, left and forgotten again. The telegram will be undelivered, nor will the whistling messenger, wisely guided than he knows to whistle, be conscious as he walks away of the drawn blind that is pushed aside an inch by a finger, and then fearfully replaced again. No, let the miserable wrestle with his own shadows. Let him, if indeed he be so mad, clip and strain and enfold and couch the succubus, but let him do so in a house into which not an air of heaven penetrates, nor a bright finger of the sun pierces the filthy twilight. The lost must remain lost. Humanity has other business to attend to. For the handwriting of the two letters that Oleron stealing noiselessly one June day into his kitchen to rid his sitting-room of an armful of fetid and decaying flowers had seen on the floor within his door had had no more meaning for him than if it had belonged to some dim and far-away dream, and at the beating of the telegraph boy upon the door, within a few feet of the bed where he lay, he had gnashed his teeth and stopped his ears. He had pictured the lad standing there just beyond his partition among packets of provisions and bundles of dead and dying flowers, for his outer landing was littered with these. Ulron had feared to open his door to take them in. After a week the errand lads had reported that there must be some mistake about the order, and had left no more. Inside, in the red twilight, the old flowers turned brown and fell and decayed where they lay. Gradually his power was draining away. The abomination fastened on Ulron's power. The steady sapping sometimes left him for many hours of prostration, gazing vacantly up at his red-tinged ceiling, idly suffering such fancies as came of themselves to have their way with him. Even the strongest of his memories had no more than a precarious hold upon his attention. Sometimes a flitting half-memory of a novel to be written, a novel it was important that he should write, tantalised him for a space before vanishing again and sometimes whole novels, perfect, splendid, established to endure, rose magically before him, and sometimes the memories were absurdly remote and trivial of garrets he had inhabited, and lodgings that had sheltered him, and so forth. Oleron had known a good deal about such things in his time, but all that was now past. He had at last found a place which he did not intend to leave until they fetched him out, a place that some might have thought a little on the green-sick side, that others might have considered to be a little too redolent of long-dead and morbid things for a living man to be mewed up in, but, ah, so irresistible, with such an authority of its own, with such an associate of its own, and a place of such delights when once a man had ceased to struggle against its inexorable will. A novel? Somebody ought to write a novel about a place like that. There must be lots to write about in a place like that, if one could but get to the bottom of it. It had probably already been painted by a man called Maidley, who had lived there, but Oleron had not known this Maidley, had a strong feeling that he wouldn't have liked him, would rather he had lived somewhere else, really couldn't stand the fellow, hated him, Maidley, in fact. Ah, that was a joke. He seriously doubted whether the man had led the life he ought. Oleron was in two minds sometimes, whether he wouldn't tell that long-nosed guardian of the public morals across the way about him, but probably he knew, and had made his praying hullabaloos for him also. That was his line. Why, Oleron himself had had a dust-up with him about something or other, some girl or other. Elsie Bengoff, her name was, he remembered. Oleron had moments of deep uneasiness about this Elsie Bengoff, or rather, he was not so much uneasy about her as restless about the things she did. Chief of these was the way in which she persisted in thrusting herself into his thoughts, and whenever he was quick enough he sent her packing the moment she made her appearance there. The truth was that she was not merely a bore, she had always been that. It had now come to the pitch when her very presence in his fancy was inimical to the full enjoyment of certain experiences. She had no tact really ought to have known that people are not at home to the thoughts of everybody all the time, ought in mere politeness to have allowed him certain seasons quite to himself, and was monstrously ignorant of things if she did not know, 
as she appeared not to know, that there were certain special hours when a man's veins ran with fire and daring and power, in which, well, in which he had a reasonable right to treat folk as he had treated that prying Barrett, to shut them out completely. But no, up she popped, the thought of her, and ruined all, bright towering fabrics, by the side of which even those perfect magical novels of which he dreamed were done and grey, vanished utterly at her intrusion. It was as if a fog should suddenly quench some fair beaming star, as if at the threshold of some golden portal prepared for Oleron a pit should suddenly gape, as if a bat-like shadow should turn the growing dawn into murk and darkness again. Therefore Oleron strove to stifle even the nascent thought of her. Nevertheless there came an occasion on which this woman, Bengough, absolutely refused to be suppressed. Oleron could not have told exactly when this happened. He only knew, by the glimmer of the street-lamp on his blind, that it was some time during the night, and that for some time she had not presented herself. He had no warning, none of her coming. She just came, was there. Strive as he would, he could not shake off the thought of her, nor the image of her face. She haunted him. But for her to come at that moment of all moments, really it was past belief. How she could endure it, Oleron could not conceive. Actually to look on, as it were, at the triumph of a rival. Good God! It was monstrous! Tact! Reticence! He had never credited her with an overwhelming amount of either, but he had never attributed mere—oh, there was no word for it—monstrous! Monstrous! Did she intend, thenceforward, good God, to look on? Oleron felt the blood rush up to the roots of his hair with anger against her. "'Damnation take her!' he choked. But the next moment his heat and resentment had changed to a cold sweat of cowering fear. Panic-stricken, he strove to comprehend what he had done. For, though he knew not what, he knew he had done something, something fatal, irreparable, blasting. Anger he had felt, but not this blaze of ire that suddenly flooded the twilight of his consciousness with a white, infernal light. That appalling flash was not his— not his, that open rift of bright and searing hell. Not his, not his. His had been the hand of a child, preparing a puny blow. But what was this other horrific hand, that was drawn back to strike in the same place? Had he set that in motion? Had he provided the spark, that had touched off the whole accumulated power of that formidable and relentless place? He did not know. He only knew that that poor igniting particle in himself was blown out, that—oh, impossible! A clinging kiss—how else to express it?—had changed on his very lips to a gnashing and a removal, and that for very pity of the awful odds he must cry out to her, against whom he had lately raged to guard herself. Guard herself! "'Look out!' he shrieked aloud. The revulsion was instant as if a cold, slow billow had broken over him. He came to to find that he was lying in his bed, that the mist and horror that had for so long enwrapped him had departed, that he was Paul Oleron, and that he was sick, naked, helpless, and unutterably abandoned and alone. His faculties, though weak, answered at last to his calls upon them, and he knew that it must have been a hideous nightmare that had left him sweating and shaking thus. Yes, he was himself, Paul Oleron, a tired novelist, already past the summit of his best work, and slipping downhill again, empty-handed from it all. He had struck short in his life's aim. He had tried too much, had overestimated his strength, and was a failure. A failure. It all came to him in the single word, enwrapped and complete. It needed no sequential thought. He was a failure. He had missed. And he had missed not one happiness, but two. He had missed the ease of this world which men loved, and he had missed also that other shining prize for which men forgo ease, the snatching and holding and triumphant bearing up aloft, of which is the only justification of the mad adventurer who hazards the enterprise, and there was no second attempt. Fate has no morrow. Oleron's morrow must be to sit down to profitless, ill-done, unrequired work again. And so on the morrow after that, and the morrow after that, and as many morrows as there might be. He lay there, weakly, yet sanely, considering it. 
and since the whole attempt had failed it was hardly worth while to consider whether a little might not be saved from the general wreck. No good would ever come of that half-finished novel. He had intended that it should appear in the autumn, was under contract that it should appear. No matter. It was better to pay forfeit to his publishers than to waste what days were left. He was spent. Age was not far off, and paths of wisdom and sadness were the properest for the remainder of the journey. If only he had chosen the wife, the child, the faithful friend at the fireside, and let them follow an ignis fatuus, that list. In the meantime it began to puzzle him exceedingly that he should be so weak, that his room should smell so overpoweringly of decaying vegetable matter, and that his hand, chancing to stray to his face in the darkness, should encounter a beard. Most extraordinary, he began to mutter to himself. Have I been ill? Am I ill now? And if so, why have they left me alone? Extraordinary! He thought he heard a sound from the kitchen or bathroom. He rose a little on his pillow and listened. Ah! He was not alone, then. It certainly would have been extraordinary if they had left him ill and alone. Alone? Oh, no! He would be looked after. He wouldn't be left ill to shift for himself. If everybody else had forsaken him, he could trust Elsie Bengough, the dearest chum he had for that. Bless her faithful heart! But suddenly a short, stifled, spluttering cry rang sharply out. Paul! It came from the kitchen. And in the same moment it flashed upon Oleron, he knew not how, that two, three, five, he knew not how many minutes before, another sound, unmarked at the time, but suddenly transfixing his attention now, had striven to reach his intelligence. This sound had been the slight touch of metal on metal, just such a sound as Oleron made when he put his key into the lock. "'Hello? Who's that?' he called sharply from his bed. He had no answer. He called again. "'Hello? Who's there? Who is it?' This time he was sure he heard noises, soft and heavy, in the kitchen. "'This is a queer thing altogether,' he muttered. "'By Jove, I'm as weak as a kitten, too. Hello there. Somebody called, didn't they? Elsie, is that you?' Then he began to knock with his hand on the wall at the side of his bed. "'Elsie! Elsie, you called, didn't you? Please come here, whoever it is.' There was a sound as of a closing door, and then silence. Oleron began to get rather alarmed. "'It may be a nurse,' he muttered. "'Elsie'd have to get me a nurse, of course. She'd sit with me as long as she could spare the time, brave lass, and she'd get a nurse for the rest. But it was awfully like her voice. "'Elsie? Or whoever it is? I can't make this out at all. I must go and see what's the matter.' He put one leg out of bed. Feeling its feebleness, he reached out with his hand for the additional support of the wall. But before putting out the other leg he stopped and considered, picking at his new-found beard. He was suddenly wondering whether he dared go into the kitchen. It was such a frightfully long way. No man knew what horror might not leap and huddle on his shoulders if he went so far. When a man has an overmastering impulse to get back into bed, he ought to take heed of the warning and obey it. Besides, why should he go? What was there there to go for? If it was that Bengoff creature again, let her look after herself. Oleron was not going to have things cramp themselves on his defenceless back for the sake of such a spoil-sport as she. If she was in, let her let herself out again, and the sooner the better for her. Oleron simply couldn't be bothered. He had his work to do. On the morrow he must set about the writing of a novel, with a heroine, so winsome, capricious, adorable, jealous, wicked, beautiful, inflaming, and altogether evil— that men should stand amazed. She was coming over him now. He knew by the alteration of the very air of the room when she was near him, and that soft thrill of bliss that had begun to stir in him never came unless she was beckoning, beckoning. He let go the wall and fell back into bed again as, oh, unthinkable, the other half of that kiss that a Nash had interrupted was placed, how else convey it, on his lips robbing him of very breath. In the bright June sunlight a crowd filled the square, and looked up at the windows of the old house, with the antique insurance marks in its walls of red brick, and the ancient's notice-boards hanging like wooden choppers over the paling. Two constables stood at the broken gate of the narrow entrance alley, keeping folk back. The women kept to the outskirts of the throng, moving now and then as if to see the drawn red blinds of the old house from a new angle, and talking in whispers. 
the children were in the houses behind closed doors. A long-nosed man had a little group about him, and he was telling some story over and over again, and another man, little and fat and wide-eyed, sought to capture the long-nosed man's audience with some relation in which a key figured. "'And it was revealed to me that there'd been something that very afternoon,' the long-nosed man was saying. "'I was standing there, where Constable Saunders is, or rather, I was passing about my business, when they came out. There was no deceiving me. Oh, no deceiving me. I saw her face.' "'What was it like, Mr. Barrett?' a man asked. "'It was like hers, whom our Lord said to, "'Woman, doth any man accuse thee? "'White as paper, and no mistake. "'Don't tell me.' "'And so I walked straight across to Mrs. Barrett, "'and I, and Jane, I says, this must stop, and stop at once. "'We are commanded to avoid evil,' I says, "'and it must come to an end now. "'Let him get help elsewhere.' "'And she says to me, John, she says, "'it's four and sixpence a week.' "'Them was her words.' "'Jane,' I says, "'if it was forty-six thousand pounds it should stop, "'and from that day to this she hasn't set foot inside that gate.' "'There was a short silence, and then, "'Did Mrs. Barrett ever see anything like?' "'Somebody vaguely inquired. "'Barrett turned austerely on the speaker. "'What Mrs. Barrett saw and Mrs. Barrett didn't see "'shall not pass these lips. "'Even as it is written, keep thy tongue from speaking evil,' he said. "'Another man spoke.' "'He was pretty near canned up in the wagon and horses that night, weren't he, Jim?' "'Yeah, he hadn't half copped it.' "'Not standing treat much, neither. He was in the bar all on his own.' "'So he was. We talked about it.' The fat, scared-eyed man made another attempt. "'She got the key off me. She had a number of it. She came into my shop of a Tuesday evening.' Nobody heeded him. "'Shut your heads,' a heavy labourer commented gruffly. "'She hasn't been found yet. Here's the inspectors.' "'We shall know more in a bit.' Two inspectors had come up and were talking to the constables who guarded the gate. The little fat man ran eagerly forward, saying that she had bought the key of him. "'I remember the number, because it's being three ones and three threes. One, 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 three, three, three. he exclaimed excitedly. An inspector put him inside. "'Nobody's been in?' he asked one of the constables. "'No, sir.' "'Thank you, Brackley. Come with us. You, Smith, keep the gate. There's a squad on its way.' The two inspectors and the constable passed down the alley and entered the house. They mounted the wide-carved staircase. "'This don't look as if he'd been out much lately,' said one of the inspectors muttered, as he kicked aside a litter of dead leaves and paper that lay outside Oleron's door. "'I don't think we need knock. Break the pane, Brackley.' The door had two glazed panels. There was a sound of shattered glass, and Brackley put his hand through the hole his elbow had made, and drew back the latch. "'Phew!' choked one of the inspectors as they entered. "'Let some light and air in quick. It stinks like a hearse.' The assembly out in the square saw the red blinds go up, and the windows of the old house flung open. "'That's better,' said one of the inspectors, putting his head out of a window and drawing a deep breath. "'That seems to be the bedroom in there. Will you go in, Sims, while I go over the rest?' They had drawn up the bedroom blind also, and the waxy-white, emaciated man on the bed had made a blinker of his hand against the torturing flood of brightness nor could he believe that his hearing was not playing tricks with him, for there were two policemen in his room, bending over him and asking where she was. He shook his head. "'This woman, Bengoff, goes by the name of Miss Elsie Bengoff. Do you hear? Where is she?' "'No good, Brackley. Get him up. Be careful with him. I'll just shove my head out the window, I think.' The other inspector had been through Oleron's study and had found nothing and was now in the kitchen, kicking aside an ankle-deep mass of vegetable refuse that cumbered the floor. The kitchen window had no blind, and was overshadowed by the blank end of the house across the alley. The kitchen appeared to be empty. But the inspector, kicking aside the dead flowers, noticed that a shuffling track that was not of his making had been swept to a cupboard in the corner. In the upper part of the door of the cupboard was a square panel that looked as if it slid on runners. The door itself was closed. The inspector advanced, put out his hand to the little knob, and slid the hatch along its groove. Then he took an involuntary step back again. Framed in the aperture, and falling forward a little, before it jammed again in its frame, was something that resembled a large lumpy pudding, done up in a pudding-bag of faded browny-red frieze. "'Ah!' said the inspector. To close the hatch again he would have had to thrust that pudding back with his hand, and somehow he did not quite like the idea of touching it. Instead he turned the handle of the cupboard itself. 
there was weight behind it, so much weight that, after opening the door three or four inches and peering inside, he had to put his shoulder to it in order to close it again. In closing it, he left sticking out, a few inches from the floor, a triangle of black and white check skirt. He went into the small hall. "'All right,' he called. They had got Oleron into his clothes. He still used his hands as blinkers, and his brain was very confused. A number of things were happening that he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand the extraordinary mess of dead flowers there seemed to be everywhere. He couldn't understand why there should be police officers in his room. He couldn't understand why one of these should be sent for a four-wheeler and a stretcher. And he couldn't understand what heavy article they seemed to be moving about in the kitchen. His kitchen! "'What's the matter?' he muttered sleepily. Then he heard a murmur in the square, and the stopping of a four-wheeler outside. A police officer was at his elbow again, and Oleron wondered why, when he whispered something to him, he should run off a string of words, something about, "'Used in evidence against you.' They had lifted him to his feet, and were assisting him towards the door. No, Oleron couldn't understand it at all. They got him down the stairs and along the alley. Oleron was aware of confused, angry shoutings. He gathered that a number of people wanted to lynch somebody or other. Then his attention became fixed on a little fat, frightened-eyed man, who appeared to be making a statement that an officer was taking down in a notebook. "'I'd seen her with him. They was often together. She came into my shop and said it was for him. I thought it was all right. One 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 three three three. the number was,' the man was saying. The people seemed to be very angry. Many police were keeping them back, but one of the inspectors had a voice that Oleron thought quite kind and friendly. He was telling somebody to get somebody else into the cab before something or other was brought out, and Oleron noticed that a four-wheeler was drawn up at the gate. It appeared that it was himself who was to be put into it, and as they lifted him up, he saw that the inspector tried to stand between him and something that stood behind the cab, but was not quick enough to prevent Oleron seeing that this something was a hooded stretcher. The angry voices sounded like the sea. Something hard, like a stone, hit the back of the cab, and the inspector followed Oleron in and stood with his back to the window nearer the side where the people were. The door they had put Oleron in at remained open, apparently till the other inspector should come, and through the opening Oleron had a glimpse of the hatchet-like to-let boards among the privet trees. One of them said that the key was at number six. Suddenly the raging of voices was hushed. Along the entrance alley shuffling steps were heard, and the other inspector appeared at the cab door. "'Right away,' he said to the driver. He entered, fastened the door after him, and blocked up the second window with his back. Between the two inspectors Oleron slept peacefully. The cab moved down the square. The other vehicle went up the hill. The mortuary lay that way. End of chapter number one